0: Hello, and welcome to another episode of ABC Gotham. My name is Kate, and as always, I'm with Kathleen.
1: Hello, everybody.
0: And tonight, we're bringing you the letter E for the second time around, and I'm sure you looked at the timer and saw that it's kind of a big episode. Sit back, relax, and let us tell you all about what, Kathleen?
1: Espionage. Espionage. Espionage in New York City history. And folks, there is a lot of it. People are always spying on people.
0: Yeah, and we didn't even go into everything. We just thought we'd hit the, like, high notes. There's a few people Mm -hmm. that we missed that I actually made a small, like, note of that I think maybe if we can fit them in later in the alphabet, that would be awesome. And there are definitely some big ones in here that kind of might have deserved their own podcast. But, you know... With one episode of espionage, we thought we'd just give you everything at once.
1: Absolutely. That was kind of the hardest part of the research of all this is there's just so much good stuff. There's so many interesting people and just, you know, things we could just distill down into really fascinating nuggets. But this would be like the mega of all mega episodes. So we are not going to try to do anything exhaustive here. We're just going to bring you some really interesting stuff. Uh, Most of the espionage, as you'll learn, tends to be associated with one or or another particular war, but that's not always the case. So you'll you'll learn more about that. And I do want to make one one big uh, uh announcement, not announcement. I do want to let you know right now we're not going to do anything on World War 2. No. We, we have have left that out on purpose yes. because there is so much and it is so good and it's definitely getting its own episode later on, so just stay tuned for that. So don't think that that's an oversight. That was a, that was a deliberate, although somewhat, I'm going to admit a little bit painful to have to let all that good stuff go. But honestly, there's plenty of good stuff in this episode by without it.
0: I just figured my World War Two notes will just kind of go over into uh, into that episode that will come mm-hmm. up eventually. So yeah, I otherwise I'm glad you said that. I was expecting we'd get some comments or notes saying hey guys you missed an entire an entire Mm -hmm. war no Mm we didn't
1: didn't you guys know about x y and z we're like yes we know yeah (laughs) so don't spoil it
0: for people who if you know what we're talking about that happened in world war ii don't spoil it for people who don't know about it
1: yeah yeah it it will all be revealed so and it's good
0: we've got some spies who are very successful we've got got at least one case of the worst spies ever (laughs) and then we've got maybe people who should you know should not have been convicted of espionage so we're going all the way across the board but let's start kathleen at the beginning
1: we're going to start in the beginning we'll go in chronological order uh with your with your information this evening and i'm going to kick things off with the revolutionary war so, when discussing Revolutionary War era spying and espionage, you have to start with something called the Culper Spy Ring, Culper, C U L P E R, which
0: we talked about briefly, right? In another episode we talked about the spy ring before.
1: I know it came up in at least one and you will and it will become clear as as I as I tell more. You will you will remember which episode it's from. Um, Culper spy ring. So Culper was the codename of two of its members. That's how the spy ring got its name. So this was a group that operated mostly on Long Island, but it was also in New York City and in Connecticut. Uh, went in, in Long Island, most of the people in the group were from the village of Setauket. So uh, Town of Heroes, if you ever go to Sitoket or if you're from Setauket, thank you. Um, and all these people kept General Washington, supplied with important information about the movements of British troops in new york and on long island now the details of how this whole system originated is not clear but here's what we do know it was around 1778 There was a man named uh, major benjamin Tallmadge. he was head of the organization he reported to general washington all the members of this group were given code names they used a lot of you know spy techniques they conveyed information like using coded messages published in newspapers but according to my research, it sounds like the bulk of the information was hand-delivered messages. Literally, hand-to-hand-to-hand-to-hand-to-hand. Um, for these letters, they even developed a method of invisible ink, something called a sympathetic stain.
0: Wow. I actually imagine people, like you see in the movies, like they're palming the note and like shaking hands and passing That's what down. I'm
1: imagining, yeah.
0: That's what I'm hoping <laughs> But I mean,
1: there's like horseback riding, there's boats <coughs> involved. I mean, it's, it was long distances. And it's interesting because they would... They would be writing the real message in between the lines of what appeared to be a typical letter, an unrelated letter. So if they're stopped, oh, this is the letter I'm bringing to my friend, and they read it, and it's fine. You would have to cover it in some liquid to actually bring up the actual message. And if I understand correctly from my research, then after that liquid dried, the message would disappear again. So it was still safe to to move around with that. So they would write in between the lines of what appeared to be a normal letter so transporting these messages was a pretty convoluted process but of course that was necessary because they had to uh, circumvent the British. Here's how it would go so there would be news of the British plans and movements these were gathered in New York City by a man named Robert Townsend he operated a coffee shop near Wall Street um, I, th- I believe everyone there thought he was a Tory meaning uh, loyal to the Queen Victoria is where I believe the term Tory came from Um and the Brits there were talking freely in his coffee shop, and he got information there. So, gathered this information. He was known to General Washington as Culper Jr. He was one of the culpers of the Culper Ring. Information gathered by him was taken to Setauket on horseback by a man named Austin Rowe, a native of Setauket. Austin Rowe, in turn, left it in a secret hiding place for another man named Abraham Woodhull, You don't have to memorize these names. They're not going to be on the quiz, but they are, you know, important people. Abram Woodhull was the middleman in the spy system. He went by the name Culper Sr. He's the other Culper. He turned this message over to Caleb Brewster, who has a boat. He took it across the Sound, Long Island Sound, to one of his boats, delivered it to Major Benjamin Talmadge and his headquarters in Connecticut. So from there, it was delivered to General Washington, wherever General Washington happened to be. The ring conducted these kinds of operations mostly between 1778 and 1781. So that's just a three-year span. The interesting thing is, well, there's a lot of interesting things, but the one of the few interesting things that I'm going to go over tonight, women were a really integral part of the Culper Ring. It's great because at the time, women were expected to share their husband's beliefs. They weren't directly and openly involved in politics so that they were less suspicious. If they were, you know, walking around or doing anything or talking to people or writing things down, whatever, she couldn't possibly be thinking about politics. She's just, she she has the same opinions her husband does. Her husband is the one we would be worried about. So there's a woman named Anna Strong. She was a member of the Culper Ring. She was a resident of Long Island. She helped pass along messages from the spy ring. This is great. Oh, I love this. By posting prearranged signals to indicate when one of the spies was ready to submit intelligence. Now, this will seem like a, a non sequitur, but just bear with me. Okay. Back in that day, when women wore petticoats, which they did every day, they tended to be red. Standard color for petticoats is red.
0: Wait, standard color for petticoats is red?
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: That seems pretty brazen.
1: I know, right? But that's just what petticoats were. But Anna Strong had a black petticoat, which she would hang out on the wash line, on her, on her clothesline. So Abraham Woodhull, if he saw a black petticoat waving on her clothesline, He knew that boatman Caleb Brewster had arrived in town, had sailed his boat across the Sound, and was ready to convey messages from the city. Now! So, not only did Abram Woodhull get that information by seeing a black petticoat on the clothesline, here's the thing Caleb Brewster could be hiding in any one of six different hiding places. That was necessary so he could avoid detection. How is Townsend able to know where Brewster is? Where does he go? to get the information. Well, back to Anna Strong. Next to the petticoat on the laundry line, she would hang a quantity of white handkerchiefs. The specific number of handkerchiefs indicated one of the six hiding places where Brewster might be located. So, Abram Woodhull looks up, sees a clothesline, black petticoat, four handkerchiefs, boom. He knows Caleb Brewster's there, he's got information, and he's hiding in location number four. Awesome. Now, strong was not discovered by the british but her husband a man named judge strong was arrested and thrown into prison on one of the worst british prison ships
0: oh is this our favorite prison ship if you can have a favorite prison ship
1: <laughs> i don't know all, all i was able to find is that it was one of the worst prison ships it might have been um the jersey which we discussed i'm gonna in go with episode... it's the jersey yeah, I think we could we could assume that. So this is this is where we've heard of the Culper Ring before. Was the episode about the British prison ships and the prison ship martyrs? Episode P. And the first time we went to the alphabet. So her husband was arrested, and he was on one of these worst prison ships. Strong got permission to visit her husband, and took along with her a boatload of food. This probably saved his life and the lives of many many other prisoners. Not only did she do that, later on, she secured his release. She got him off the boat, legally, although he had to flee to Connecticut for safety. So, amazing, amazing woman, Anna Strong. And with the Culper Ring, this was this was secure. This was very tight security. So secret. So, so secret. Secrecy was so strict that Washington himself did not know the identity That's of amazing. all the operatives. He didn't even know all of them. The general public was not aware of the ring's existence. Are you ready? Get ready. I'm ready. The general public, you, me, our parents, grandparents, was not aware that this ring existed until the 1930s. Wow. That is amazing. 1930s. Can you believe that? Less than a century ago. Even Townsend's role, so kind of the boss, well, one of the bosses, um, Townsend, he, even his role was not conclusively determined until 1939, almost 1940. And they discovered a trunk of old letters in the Townsend family home. Historian, oh, you're going to love this name, Morton Pennypacker.
0: Yes. Yes. Mm. I love strange last names.
1: Good name. Morton Pennypacker noticed the resemblance of handwriting. That's pretty In smart. these letters. That is it. And he noticed other letters written by Robert Townsend in George Washington's historical collection. They confirmed this by handwriting analysis. Only in 1939. Can you believe it?
0: Amazing. That's pretty it's, crazy.
1: So a couple other Revolutionary War people. I'll try to get through them quickly. But one is Nathan Hale. And you can't... He, he's, he's huge. You probably learned about him in history class. He is best remembered for his purported last words before he was hanged. I only regret that I have but one life to give for my country. Right. There is some discussion as to whether or not he said that. How it was exactly phrased. but But... We're pretty sure it was something impressive. At any rate, Nathan Hale was a soldier for the Continental Army during the American Revolutionary War. He volunteered for an intelligence-gathering mission in New York City, and he was captured by the British and hanged. And this, that was when he, his famous last words. He has long been considered an American hero. In 1985, he was officially designated the State Hero of Connecticut. I don't, does New York have a state hero?
0: I feel like we should have one.
1: I feel like we should have one. We'll look into that. So, during the Battle of Long Island, and this was a, a British victory, and, and when they captured New York City, uh, Hale volunteered. This is on September 8th, 1776, to go behind enemy lines and report on British troop movements. He was ferried across on September 12th, and it was an act of spying, which was immediately punishable by death. And he, he was taking a huge risk, obviously, it posed a very great personal risk. This was after the Battle of Long Island, the Brits won. On September 21st, a quarter of the lower portion of Manhattan burned. This is the Great New York Fire of 1776. The fire was later widely thought to to have been started by American saboteurs. They didn't want the city to fall into British hands, although Washington and Congress have denied this. It was also speculated that the fire was a work of British soldiers acting without orders. So, in the aftermath of the fire, more than 200 American partisans were rounded up by the British, including Nathan Hale. Uh, There's an account of his capture, which was written by a person named Consider Tiffany, a Connecticut shopkeeper and a loyalist. This was obtained by the Library of Congress. And in Tiffany's account, Major Robert Rogers of the Queen's Rangers saw Hale in a tavern and recognized Hale despite his disguise. Mm. Uh, after luring Hale into betraying himself by pretending to be a patriot himself, somehow dropping his English accent, I don't know, Rogers and or his rangers... Or maybe just
0: everyone had the same accent at the time.
1: I actually think that's the case, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so they apprehended uh, Nathan Hale near Flushing Bay in Queens. Um, or alternately, there's another story that maybe he had a cousin, He well, we know he had a cousin, Samuel Hale, who was a loyalist, who gave him away to the Brits. So, British General William Howe had established his headquarters in the Beekman House, so it was in a rural part of Manhattan.
0: I love ru- I love rural Manhattan. I love the idea of it, yeah.
1: Uh, this was on a rise between fiftieth and fifty first streets between first and Second Avenue. so you can go there now, near where a Beekman place commemorates this connection. Hale was reportedly questioned by Howe, and physical evidence was found on him. Rogers provided information. He's was like, yeah, this guy's totally a, a, a patriot. According to tradition, Hale spent the night in the greenhouse at the mansion. He requested a Bible. His request was denied. Later, he requested a clergyman. The request was denied. According to the standards of the time, spies were hanged as illegal combatants. And on the morning of September 22, 1776, he was marched along Post Road to the Park of Artillery, which was next to a public house. ...called the Dove Tavern, which would have been at today's 66th and 3rd Avenue. You can go there today. And he was hanged. He was only 21 years old. State hero of Connecticut, Nathan Hale.
0: Well, before we get too far off of the Revolutionary War, I did remember something about the Culver spy ring, which is Agent uh, 355. Which is what? Agent 355. And I, I'm i okay. pretty sure we've talked about her before in this podcast. She's mm-hmm. one of um, the spies that nobody knows who she is still.
1: Oh. They think
0: it's Anna Strong, but they oh, okay. don't know. Uh, mm-hmm. Whoever she was had contact with Benedict Arnold, uh, wow. Major John Aunt Andre, uh, she's supposed to be a, a member of a prominent loyalist family, and so she has a lot of access to British commanders and is able to pass along the info that way.
1: Oh, my goodness. Maybe, maybe, yeah.
0: Um, Yeah, so I, I always remember uh, her because it's so strange that nobody still knows who she is.
1: Isn't that great? Yeah, yeah. All right, now I've got one last Revolutionary War hero. This is Haim Salomon. Haim uh, Salomon. H A Y M is his first name. Salomon has been in different uh, different sources. It's spelled either S A L O M O N or S O L O M O N. Solomon. Salomon. So I'm just going to be saying Solomon. It's not clear uh, how it was spelled. Haim Solomon was a Sephardic Jew who immigrated to New York from Poland during the, the American Revolution. He was a broker, and he helped convert the French loans into ready cash by selling bills of exchange for Robert Morris, who was the superintendent of finance. So in this way, he aided the Continental Army during the Revolutionary War. So he was sympathetic with the Patriot cause and joined the New York branch of the Sons of Liberty. Now in 1776, September, he was arrested as a spy, but the British pardoned him only after serving 18 months of his sentence and uh, claims of torture on a British boat. They pardoned him so that they could use his abilities as an interpreter for their Hessian mercenaries. Solomon used his position as an interpreter to help prisoners. He helped prisoners escape, and he encouraged the Hessians to desert the war effort. You uh-huh. <laughs> just imagine him talking in their language while the, while the Brits are like, Tell them this, this, and this. He's like, You guys, get the hell out of here. Really, yeah, this is you should bullshit. leave now. <laughs> what idiots. In the, In 1778, they arrested him again. They must have caught on. And they sentenced him to death, but he managed to escape. And then he made his way to his, uh, with his family. Everyone went to the rebel capital, which was Philadelphia. So in August 1781, years later now, the Continental Army had trapped Lieutenant General Charles Cornwallis in the little Virginia coastal town of Yorktown. Do you know Yorktown?
0: Yeah, in Virginia. Yeah. Yeah, uh, not too
1: far from where I grew up. Nice. So, Lieutenant General Charles Cornwallis was trapped there. George Washington and the main army and Count de Rochambeau with his French army decided to march from the Hudson Highlands to Yorktown and just finish this thing. Just wipe him out. Deliver the final blow. But, they were broke. Washington's war chest was completely empty. Congress's war chest was completely empty. Oh. Nobody had no cash. There was no money nowhere. Washington determined he needed at least $20,000 to finance the campaign. After we record this, I'll uh, go online and convert that to today's money, and that'll be posted. $20,000 back then. When Morris told him, there are no funds, not going to happen, there's no credit, can't do this, Washington gave the simple but eloquent order, quote, Send for Haim Solomon. Hmm. Solomon raised $20,000 through the sale of bills of exchange. Washington conducted the Yorktown campaign, which proved to be the final battle of the revolution. Wow! Now, Solomon had negotiated the sale of a majority of war aid from France and the Dutch Republic. Go French. Man, we owe them a lot. Selling bills of exchange to American merchants. Solomon also personally supported various members of the Continental Congress during their stay in Philadelphia, including... James Madison and James Wilson. Acting as the patriot he was, he requested below market interest rates, and he never asked for repayment. Oh,
0: wow. I'm sure plenty of
1: people just repaid it on their own, but he was not hunting people down. That he, It was amazing. So the Treaty of Paris, which was signed on September 3rd, 1783, ended the Revolutionary War, but it did not end... The financial problems of the newly established nation and America's war debt to France was never properly repaid.
0: We still owe them.
1: We, I, France. I'm sorry.
0: Yeah, you know, I'm sure they borrowed money from us from time to time. Now,
1: I, I hope it's been settled by now. But is uh, according to my research, There's a lot of interest. I hope so. I hope so. Uh, The fact that it was never properly repaid started the cascade of events leading to the French Revolution. So I don't know much about, you know, what leads up to the French Revolution. But uh, we got the aristocracy out of France? I don't know. It was a bloody time. Anyway, despite the lack of evidence, there is a legend that during the design process of the Great Seal. Washington asked what compensation Solomon wanted for his contributions, massive contributions to the war effort. Solomon replied, he wanted nothing for himself, but he wanted something for his people. As a result, the thirteen stars representing the colonies on the Great Seal were arranged in the shape of the Star of David.
0: Wow, I'm gonna have to look at that.
1: Me too. Again. Me too. Now again, there's not a, you know, we don't have conclusive evidence about this, but. Boy, wouldn't that be cool if that were true? That would be amazing. I, hope that's
0: I think we should uh, we should try to post that and, and see if it see if it works. We'll look mm-hmm, for it mm-hmm. on our Facebook page.
1: Definitely, definitely. Now, apparently, spying and espionage did not stop after the Revolutionary War. Kate, What, what happened next?
0: So uh, we're gonna fast forward a little bit in time. Of course, there's mm-hmm. still espionage going on in between the time. But as I said, we're just hitting the highlights here. So I'm going to tell you about possibly the most stupid band of spies that you will ever hear of. <laughs> so they called themselves the Confederate Army of Manhattan. So this this is uh, towards the end of this war, um, heading heading towards the end. Uh, you ha it's you know it's anybody's game at this point. Uh, Jefferson Davis, the so-called president of the Confederacy, really thinks that espionage is a good way to go. And he has a ton of spies out there. Now, the the espionage was always going in favor of the South, kind of, because you had a lot of uh, actually sympathizers in the North, sadly also had people who were defecting from the union army who were southern born and so they had a lot of information to give the south about how the union ran its army
1: oh boy yeah
0: it sounds so good i mean people go the other way as well but for the most part at the beginning of the war the south had a really big advantage because you had all these um, people coming home to fight for the south and they had all this knowledge of how to best the union armies So, this is in 1864, eight Southern spies attempt to burn down New York City. Their plan is to overwhelm the firefighters and that it would be a crushing blow to the Union. Yeah. Which it would have been. Uh, The Mm -hmm. initial plan that Jefferson Davis had was actually to go with four cities in the North, Chicago... Cincinnati, Boston, and New York City. They were going to to try to burn all four cities down on election day. The only part of the plan that actually went into into happening is the New York City version of the plan, which is why we're talking about it on this podcast. Yes. So the ringleader, the guy who's in charge of the operatives but is not actually on site when this happens, is Jacob Thompson, who had initially been a U.S. Secretary of the Interior, but he resigned at the breakout of the Civil War to become Inspector General of the Confederate States of America. Or Confederate States, yeah, Uh, Army. So in 1864, Jefferson Davis asks him to lead a group to Canada where he becomes the head of the Confederate Secret Service, hiding out in Canada. I think their idea is to get spies all along the northern border at Canada so that, Mm -hmm. I don't know, the Union is boxed in. Uh, I'm not sure what the idea what that was. So, the operatives, uh, they come out, hatch this plan, and they leave Canada, the eight operatives, to go down to New York City from Toronto. The night that the fires supposedly tried to happen uh, was a Friday night. Uh, the day before my birthday, November 25th Ah. at 8.45. (laughs) They tried to, it actually, it sounds like such a smart idea. They attempt to start simultaneously, but fail, um, Mm. start fires in 19 hotels, a theater, and P.T. Barnum's museum.
1: Hotels, that's smart.
0: It is smart. It is smart. And some of it was, they were like, well, we set the fires in the hotel when no one would be around, so no one would get
1: Mm -hmm. hurt. Mm Mm-hmm.
0: Like, burning the city wouldn't kill people.
1: Yeah, what nice confederates.
0: So the idea is the idea of it is that they're going to arrange them all around the city, but I'm going to put a map up on the Facebook page that mm. shows that, didn't really, it just kind of goes down Broadway. It's not like, there's there's so much of this that if it had been planned, it's scary how well it would have worked, but because they're uh-huh. so incompetent, <laughs> it's, it's like a joke. It's, it really yeah. is a joke. None of the fires, some of the fires didn't even start or were put out very quickly. To go to our Confederates, none had ever visited New York before.
1: Oh, no. Really?
0: (laughs) Yeah. Uh, No, they hadn't scouted out the city to find the most flammable locations. They're just like hotels. All right.
1: There wasn't a single Confederate soldier who had been to New York no, before uh-uh. then. Oh my god. The
0: best is one soldier, I think he's from Alabama, has a very mm-hmm. thick southern accent, was thrown out of his hotel for <laughs> extremely loudly praising the secession. So uh, way to go, spy. You don't yeah, look that was at pretty all smooth. suspicious. <laughs> um None of the spies knew about the bombs they planned to use, and they spent a day in Central Park out in the open trying them out. Oh, boy. So the idea behind this whole wow. attack... I'm laughing, but it could have been worse.
1: Yeah, I just don't know how how much more they could have screwed up. But okay, go on. Oh, yeah, on. it
0: gets better. Uh, <laughs> the idea behind the attack was that the Union citizens would be so demoralized and shocked... That the Confederate would, if they had actually attacked all four cities, which they didn't, Mm -hmm. that the, uh, the unions, the people of the Union would demand for peace negotiations with the Confederacy. So that was the idea behind this, is that, oh my God, we can't believe the South did this, so what else are they capable of?
1: Yeah, yeah, and I get the whole let's demoralize everyone argument. That's been pretty common in wartime, but wow, you really got to follow through and demoralize the people. You actually have it to it. Yeah, anyway.
0: So, our eight Confederate soldiers include the two in charge Lieutenant Colonel Robert Martin, who's 24, Lieutenant John Headley, who's also 24. These guys, mm-hmm. these kids, are who are in charge. Okay. The oldest is Lieutenant. Cobb Kennedy at 29. Now, the Union had actually been tipped off from spies of their own in Canada that this was going Mm. to happen, that there was a plan to set fires around the city. Uh, Union troops move into the city to make sure, into New York, to make sure everything's okay to go through election day, because they actually even knew the day this was going to happen.
1: Oh my lord.
0: Yeah. So... The troops, they leave there. While the troops are there, our spies um, decide to take in a play. They see the oh, sights. Sure. <laughs> but instead of actually taking this time to research what they're about to do, they, they do this stuff. But things that they could have found out more flammable sites. There were distilleries for fuel and turpentine.
1: Oh, my Dozens God. Dozens of
0: lumber yards. The Manhattan gas works.
1: <laughs> There's I can anywhere. just imagine them strolling down the street yeah. like going to their Broadway play, passing by the yeah, like looking time soaked wooden building, yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah, so they they put off for three weeks, so they're just kind of kicking around <clears throat> New York, just like you know, having a good time getting kicked out of their hotel, um, wow. they actually if they had even waited, not even hitting. And some of this stuff, but if they had waited until a day when the, there had been a, a western a breeze, if they'd started on the west side of mm-hmm. the city and waited for a breeze, a wind that was going across the city, they mm-hmm. could actually have devastated the city if they'd started it that way. But they didn't it think about that. Seems like
1: pretty obvious stuff. Pretty, like, pretty obvious
0: stuff. So uh. they all go, all eat of them. <laughs> Mm -hmm. They start fires on piles of clothing. However, they don't open the windows to fuel the fires. So the fires pretty much go out right away because there's no oxygen.
1: (laughs) So actually,
0: a lot of what they found were just like clothes that had burned, but nothing else. There were a few fires that like actually required a, a pail of water or so, but nothing no conflagration, no buildings burned down. Um, mm-hmm. none of the fire spread.
1: Oh my God.
0: Uh, and actually that night there had only been six of them because two of them chickened out and didn't help out with the plan. The rest just board a train for, tr- and then they just all, I guess they were just like, well, we set our fires. So let's hop on a train. And they went to Toronto. <laughs> didn't
1: work. Let's go home.
0: <laughs> right. So they go home. Um, <laughs> the only, uh, person in this spy ring, if you can call... It. I guess it's it's an, it's a spy ring.
1: I thing. guess technically it is, yeah.
0: Uh, is Robert Cobb Kennedy, our 29-year-old. He's captured mm-hmm. and he's the only one that's tried, convicted, and executed out in Bay Ridge at Fort Lafayette. Really? Yeah. So, but everyone else just kind of got away with it. They stayed in Canada or they got back to the south or they, you know... There's more important things going. There's a war going on. And yeah, yeah. That, rather that's than bad these, no,
1: but we're gonna work on this for now. Yeah. Yeah. Rather
0: than these kids who couldn't.
1: <laughs> start really a really not fire. We're not too concerned. <laughs> yeah.
0: So, that's my civil. That's oh my, my civil war god. spy ring.
1: Oh my god! What a okay.
0: It's a good thing they're so incompetent.
1: Yes, yes. It, it that would have been devastating. That was it was a good plan. I guess. Eh, I
0: guess. Well, Kathleen, are you going to bring us what? Uh, what era are you going to bring us up to now?
1: We are jumping ahead again, up to World War One, and this is a good one. This was a big one. This is World War One. German saboteurs infiltrated a terminal of the Lehigh Valley Railroad. This is on an island called Black Tom Island in the New York Harbor. There is not a Black Tom Island today. I'll explain why in a minute. Um, So it was New York Harbor. This is actually pretty near Jersey City, New Jersey. On July 30th, 1916, they blew up 34 carloads of munitions and 11 carloads of high explosives. They went right to the explosives and lit and ran. This caused $14 million in damage. So this all started just after midnight. There was uh, a series of small fires were discovered on the pier on Black Tom Island. Some of the guards fled fearing an explosion, which was pretty smart of them. Uh, but also they were guards and they weren't really doing their job. Other guards stayed because they weren't freaking cowards and they attempted to fight the fires. They eventually called the Jersey Fire De- Jersey City Fire Department. At 2.08 a.m., the first and largest of the explosions took place. Fragments from the explosion traveled such long distances, some fragments are lo- were lodged in the Statue of Liberty. Some fragments lodged in the clock tower of the Jersey Journal building in Journal Square. This was over a mile away. They actually stopped the clock in this clock tower at 2.12 a.m. <laughs> wow. The explosion was the equivalent of an earthquake, measuring between 5 and 5.5 on the Richter scale. They felt the explosion as far away as As Philadelphia.
0: No. Wow. That's amazing.
1: Philadelphia. Across New Jersey. They felt this explosion. Windows broke. As far as 25 miles away. Including thousands of windows in lower Manhattan. Some of the window panes in Times Square were completely shattered. Stained glass windows in St. Patrick's Church. Fifth Avenue. Were destroyed. Wow. The outer wall of Jersey City's City Hall was cracked. The Brooklyn Bridge was shaken. People as far away as Maryland. Were awakened. They thought it was an earthquake all the way over in Maryland.
0: That's pretty amazing. Now,
1: property damage was estimated at twenty million dollars. So that, uh, in today's numbers, four hundred and twenty-nine million dollars worth of property damage. Unbelievable. The damage to the Statue of Liberty was estimated uh, to be a hundred thousand dollars back then, or in today's money, two million one hundred forty-five thousand dollars worth of damage to the Statue of Liberty alone. That included to the skirt and to the torch. Listen to this. Immigrants being processed at Ellis Island had to be evacuated to Lower Manhattan. And obviously people died in this. Uh, Reports vary, though. So what they can say is as many as as seven people may have been killed, including a Jersey City policeman, a Lehigh Valley Railroad chief of police, a 10-week-old infant... I know. The barge captain, uh, one of these barges full of munitions. um, Injuries, of course. Hundreds and hundreds of injuries. And that was just the main blast I was telling you about. There were smaller explosions that continued to occur for hours after that initial blast. So they investigated. They figured out who did it. The Lehigh Valley Railroad Company, advised by John J. McCloy, sought damages against Germany under the Treaty of Berlin. From the German-American Mixed Claims Commission. So this commission declared in 1939 that Imperial Germany had been responsible and ordered damages. The two sides finally settled on $50 million. That was in 1953. So today's money, they settled on, wow, $485,131,396.96.
0: Hey, wait, did they pay us that money?
1: The the final payment was made in 1979.
0: Oh, my goodness.
1: Mm -hmm, Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I'd said that Black Tom Island isn't there anymore. Uh, It it wasn't that it exploded. It's actually because there are landfill projects that went around it, and they later made Black Tom Island part of the mainland, and it is now part of New Jersey. It was incorporated into Liberty State Park. The former Black Tom Island is located at the end of Morris Pazin Drive in the southeastern corner of the park, and there's a plaque there. It marks the spot of the explosion, and there's also a circle of American flags, which complement the plaque. You can find this just a bit east of the Visitor's Center. If you want to, to uh, visit the site of the explosion in New Jersey.
0: Yeah, I'm actually looking at pictures of the devastation, which we'll post some of those on our Facebook page. Mm-hmm. It's it's uh, it's really is amazing and sad. There's there's just nothing left.
1: It's it's. Amazing. There's actually footage. I don't know if we were able to post it, but there is footage of the the burning wreckage after the explosion. It's really astonishing. Now, I believe you have something to tell us about a certain wealthy family.
0: I do. I feel like you're doing the uh, the heavy, sad ones, and I'm getting the lighter
1: <laughs> ones so far. Maybe.
0: So, Kathleen, did you know that Franklin Delano Roosevelt loved espionage?
1: I did not know that. Although I suppose it makes sense. What What did he do?
0: He read books. He had. He loved setting up. I. Mean, what if under? From what I understand, he loved setting up spy rings that really only dealt directly with him. Really. Uh, so the spy ring I'm about to tell you about is definitely a spy ring. I only found one article about it, which I might try to put a link to. Uh, and it's very little known. And it's kind of like rich boys playing at being spies. <laughs> <laughs> so we are talking about Vincent Astor, whose father, mm-hmm. John Jacob Astor IV, died on the Titanic. Mm. And so that's that's where we are in the Astor family line.
1: Mm.
0: And Vincent Astor was a member of a secret society called The Room, where he and his buddies all... If, you just imagine who an Astor's friends would be, and that's who would be at the room. So okay. <laughs> the wealthiest, most powerful in New York, and really in the world, kind of, mm-hmm. at the time. Yeah. They would get together, because, you know, they could go to any number of clubs in the city who would be Gosh. more than happy to have them, but they yeah. needed a place to discuss privately current political, financial, international topics, as you and I do, Kathleen. Of course, we don't want people. No, in that this way. is why we go
1: to our secret club.
0: <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so this, I can tell you where it is now. Uh, it's thirty-four East Sixty-second Street. It was a very nondescript apartment with an unlisted phone and a an anonymous mail drop. Huh. Uh, most members, actually, within the room, it's kind of funny. So we're talking about. Uh, after World War One into World War Two, mm-hmm. I know we said we weren't talking about World War Two. We're not talking about the big stuff. This is just a small little side story. So most of the members of the room uh, worked for Allied intelligence during World War One, and mm-hmm. Astor actually collected data for the U.S. government while on his private yacht on his mm-hmm. ocean cruises, as one is wont to do.
1: Right, like where we collect our own intelligence.
0: Right, exactly. You wouldn't mm-hmm. believe the info we've got
1: <laughs> from our yacht cruises. <laughs>
0: so, you know, the room is meeting. Mm-hmm. Aster and FDR actually become friends. Um, mm-hmm. They're kind of from the same neck. They're they're both from New York City. They're both yeah. from families that trace their lineages back for both of their families have been in New York for a long time.
1: Both mm-hmm. influential
0: families.
1: Both freaking wealthy, let's just say it.
0: Both incredibly wealthy. So FDR runs for president and is good friends with the top members of the room. And Mm. he decides, he's been to a few, he's not a member of the room, but he's been to a few of their meetings. Mm. And he decides to start using the room as a source of confidential financial, mercantile, and international news and info. Because who better to ask than the men that are running all of that?
1: Indeed. Indeed that's who i always consult for my financial advice.
0: Yeah, me and Bloomberg, we're like.
1: Mm-hmm. We like
0: that. <laughs> um, so Astor becomes the intermediary uh in 1933 between FDR and the room to just so there's less people that know about it, it's essentially just Astor and FDR passing stuff back and forth. Wow. Yeah, amazing. Uh yeah. FDR wants to know what the Japanese are up to, so Aster takes a, I'm putting this in quotes, scientific exploration to Hmm. the Marshall Islands in the Pacific Ocean and actually sends the location of Japanese boats in in the Pacific Ocean and finds the principal naval base for the Japanese and sends that info back to FDR. So he actually kind of is a spy, but it's funny because... They're all rich boys playing at being spies. Right. I'm going to tell It changes in a minute, and that's when it gets serious. They're like, yeah, mm. I don't know.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: <laughs> uh, the room is now, for all intents and purposes, called the club. So this is only, essentially there's a secret society within a secret society. So Oh
1: my goodness. So the club, layers.
0: which it's, this part's pretty amazing. The club and Aster, of course, use mm-hmm. Chase Bank to see when payments for espionage and sabotage go through. They get Chase Bank to somehow volunteer this information.
1: Oh, my God.
0: Uh, you'll have to forgive me. My Russian is awful, and I'll probably apologize for it again. But there's a very not discreet Soviet espionage <laughs> based in the USA at the time. Uh-huh. Um, called Amtog. That's how, how I'm going to pronounce it. So they're actually able to track all of their transactions through Chase Bank.
1: Oh, my God. That is awesome. Several
0: others. are able to watch uh, Japan and what, where Japan's putting its money. Um, the direct... Oh, uh, Aster is actually the direct... One of his boards that he sits on is he's the director hmm. of Western Union Cable huh. and is able to look through cables that are sent. Are you serious? And send excerpts to FDR in things that he thinks are interesting.
1: Dude, they're actually pretty good at what they're doing for a bunch of boys playing around.
0: Yeah, they're not too bad. Some of it... They get the job done. FDR at some point realizes that he needs to stop having these rich boys be in charge of it because they're very needy and they they just keep wanting to be in touch with him and like, the president's mm-hmm. their buddy, and this is their fun yeah. game they play. and
1: Yeah. Uh, they're probably having more fun than they have, you know, running their mining and, and railroad industries.
0: Right. Now they're actually running the world. Like, they're actually... Yes. They actually <laughs> it's almost like they have too much power, kind of.
1: Uh-huh.
0: FDR actually decide so In 1941, Aster and FDR decide um, Astor needs, like, an official position because people are starting to question why Astor's around so much. Yeah. <laughs> so he gets promoted. He, he he. One of his many positions he has. He's chief intelligence controller for New York City, hmm. which is actually a pretty big title. Um, yeah. Officially on the books, he's inactive duty, but and he gets a desk and a secretary, but that's it. Hmm. Um, and no one's supposed to know what he's really doing. It's only he only reports to FDR. And there's lots of weird times where he calls FDR and he's like. Or FDR will call and be like, "Did you go and do this?" And he's like, "Yeah, I wanted to call you about it, but I was worried the line <laughs> was tapped, so I just
1: went ahead and, so did, I just it. Went ahead and did it." <laughs> yeah.
0: So um, the the problem is, Aster feels constrained at this point because he's no longer independent and just going off in his private yacht and doing what he wants. He actually has right. someone to report to.
1: And he's taking orders and stuff.
0: Yeah, so he kind of loses. Interest Uh, as well at the time. FDR, FDR is losing interest in this band of spies as well. He needs Mm -hmm. to have a more like trained some professionals, maybe. Yeah, professional, not like some guy (laughs) who he kind (laughs) of knows. They actually kind of fall out of being friends too. They, you know, I'm sure being president for so long, he is very busy. He doesn't have time. He's a busy
1: guy. Yeah,
0: the rich boys playing at. And I'm saying boys; they're not really boys, but right, that's what I'm right. Um, he doesn't have time for all of this, really. And that's true. it's true. It's kind of sad. Uh, uh, Astor has some really bad stomach um, illness that oh. had kind of hospitalized him for a bit. Oh. And as he does, he kind of backs off, of course, from his job, and somebody else really, like a couple of people, swoop in and try to take over that position, and he's just uh, kind of like. He just lets it go, and he sends a really sad note to FDR that's like, I hope you don't mind, but I'm just going to kind of
1: not do this anymore. I mean, don't be too sad, because it sounds like I can imagine them possibly kind of getting sick of each other. Like,
0: I think they kind of, I think FDR got sick of Aster in the end. Oh. And it sounds like... feel bad
1: for poor little rich boy.
0: Yeah, kind of. Yeah. But I, I love it in the beginning. I love this, like, the room and their talking about how to rule the world, and they actually can rule the world if they want.
1: Yep, yep, and probably got a lot of good information, it sounds like. So yeah, yeah, I
0: actually would love to have been a fly on the wall in those, some of those meetings. So now we're coming into the Soviet era
1: Yes, of, yes. of
0: espionage, and Kathleen's going to track us a little bit back in time, and then we're going to go ahead with this Soviet espionage.
1: Right, so there is a lot A lot, a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot of the Soviet Union conducting espionage in the United States, obviously, and uh, in New York City as well. They started as early as 1920. They conspired with American communists. They had other sympathetic types here. They had a lot of spirings throughout the entire U.S., of course, but the one in New York City was considered the most effective. We're number one. We're number Uh, one. The network included... Uh, a German physicist, a man by the name of Klaus Fuchs, he worked at Columbia University, and he was instrumental in developing the atomic bomb. This is interesting. The UN soon provided cover for spying too. Many members of the Secretariat were Soviet nationals or nationals of, you know, the Soviet Union's allies. The Soviets conducted espionage from its mission. Their headquarters were at 136 East 67th Street. You can go there now. And they also had a 19-story residence in Riverdale in the Bronx. Uh, I actually and had antennas hope, on top.
0: I actually hope that somebody lives at one of these addresses. I do too. And gets in touch with us and is like, I had no idea.
1: That's my house. So yeah, whoever lives at 136 East 67th. Right in, whoever lives in uh, in their 19-story residence in Riverdale. Sorry, I don't have any more specific information than that. Let us know. Um, and so, yeah, so so you should know that for quite some time, the the Soviet Union had a presence in New York City had had its networks, had its spy rings. And Kate will tell you all about their most famous spies.
0: Right. So now we're getting into the Cold War which lasted officially from 1941 to 1991. And I'm going to define it, but I'm sure most people... I actually remember the Cold War Mm -hmm. um, growing up, but I'm a little afraid there are people who were born after the Cold War, so we'll just go into a little bit.
1: There's quite a few.
0: So the idea of the Cold War is a world where uh, two major powers, the U.S. and the USSR, um, both have nuclear weapons and... Therefore, are threatened by mutually assured destruction, but they never meet in direct combat. They use these proxy wars to kind of hash things out when things get too tense. So that's kind of the It's uh, kind of my really simple, basic that's definition it. of
1: cold war. The whole time, we always knew that we could blow them up, and they could blow us up. And if anyone tried anything, we, we're all going to be wiped off the map. And, you know, we stayed like that for decades. It was a very successful war.
0: Very successful. And and this is really the, when spying really is, is kind of the big sexy thing, you know, where there's Uh the American versus, uh, Russian spies. You got the birth of James Mm -hmm. Bond, you know, yeah, kind of all this stuff, uh,
1: the heyday of the of the spy genre if you will.
0: Right. When I think of the the height of it though, when I think of the big red scare, it's like the 50s or 60s. Mhm. Mm-hmm. But it did stretch on a very very long time. Mm. So the Absolutely. case I'm going to be discussing this evening is Ethel and Julius Rosenberg, the famous Rosenberg case. So both are convicted of conspiracy to commit espionage during a time of war and they were both executed. Uh, I'm going to just go through like everything happened, and then I'm going to counter what I am saying now, if that makes sense. Yeah. So they passed off info to the USSR about the atomic bomb. Mm-hmm. Uh, this relates to New York because they are both born in New York City. Hmm. Um, Ethel want, grew up wanting to be a singer and actress, but winds up as a secretary, as one does. Mm-hmm. Julius is the son of Jewish immigrants, and after high school, he, ascend- he attended City College of New York, CCNY, which still exists to this day. If we have any uh, listeners who attend there, this is a shout-out to you. Hmm. This is, uh, he joins the Young Communist League while getting a degree there in electrical engineering. And he's actually uh, kind of the president. He's in charge of the Young Communist League. And Ethel meets him at the League, and they marry in 1939. Uh, The Young Communist League uh, of America, I think it's called, was an independent mass public youth organization in the United States. Through studying Marxism-slash-Leninism, the scientific, scientific theory of it, and active participation in the struggles of the American working class, their aim is to turn all of its members into communists. So, you kind of start by studying and then you're a communist when you graduate, I guess. Yeah. They do have two children over the course of this. uh, Julius joins the Army Signal Corps Engineering in
1: Hmm.
0: Fort Monmouth. Monmouth? Mm -hmm. Yeah, Monmouth. Monmouth, New Mm -hmm. Jersey, in 1940, fresh out of school. Um, and actually, he's fired five years later, which it's kind of funny it takes him that long to figure it out that he's a communist, but he's, <laughs> he's fired for being a communist.
1: <laughs> it's come to my attention, Mr. Rosenberg. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: So this is all through World War II. Uh, he's fired at the end of World War II, essentially. I'm like, hey, you guys kind of waited a while. But <laughs> this is where he gets a lot of research on electronics communication, radar, guided missile controls.
1: And also he was an engineer. I mean, he went in with a lot of the background. He was ready.
0: Exactly. Exactly. Mm-hmm. He's the perfect candidate. And you'll see there's so many coincidences in his life of mm. um, of how he was, he could have been the, how he is the perfect spy. Yeah. Uh, 1942 Rosenberg is introduced to a spy master by the name of Semyon Semenov. By a high-ranking member of the Communist Party USA, which he's, now that he's not a young communist, he's just part of the Communist Party, Mm -hmm. he's recruited by NKVD, which I'm not going to pronounce the Russian of that, but it translates to the People's Commissariat for Internal Affairs in the Soviet Union. Uh, They are closely associated with the Soviet secret police. And they're known for political repression. They're kind of in charge of espionage for the USSR. Through his handler, Alexandry Feklasov, <laughs> sure. Yeah, um, sure, Julius Rosenberg apparently provided thousands of top secret reports, including a few a proxy, proximity fuse, which was used to shoot down U.S. aircraft. Mm-hmm. Rosenberg also recruits other sympathetic people to the NKVD. A lot of this espionage is about how many people can you commu- can you bring over. Like, Kathleen, who do you... Kn- hmm. you be, they'll be like, well, who do you know that does this, this, and this? Or you'll say, I, I have friends that are nuclear physicists. I have this friend. My brother-in-law is this person. And you try to bring as many of those people over as you can. Um, at this point, he gets his own spy ring, and his nickname is Liberal. Through him... The NKVD gets access to thousands of documents from the National Advisory Committee for Aeronautics, including, and this was kind of the scary thing, a complete set of design and production drawings for the first U.S. Army Air Force jet fighter. Uh, It's called the Lockheed P-80 Shooting Star. Feklisov, who I've already said was his handler, also found out through Rosenberg that his brother-in-law, David Greenglass, a name to remember, was working on the Manhattan Project at Los Alamos, and Julius recruits him. Now, the Manhattan Project also is very New York City-based. I know it seems like we're going out of New York, but a lot of this played out here in New York City.
1: Or it loops back around to it.
0: Right. The Manhattan Project actually was named the Manhattan Project because most of their offices and their initial tests were done in New York City. In Manhattan, so that's how they come up with the Manhattan Project thing. There's a bit of a, a stall. The U.S. and USSR are allies during World War II, um, but the mm-hmm. whole time the U.S. is a little um, suspicious of Stalin. I think they they really never trust Stalin, and they shouldn't because he's got spies the whole time. Um, the U.S. does not share any info with Russia on the Manhattan Project, and so the so but the Soviets mm-hmm. know what's going, kind of know what's going on. And uh, they start using espionage. Everyone, it's a race to see who can build the bomb.
1: Yeah, I mean, they, they were working on it. Germany's working everyone, on so, it. Russia's yeah.
0: working on it. Everyone's working on it. Um, actually, a lot of project members on the Manhattan Project gave Russia info because they were actually, uh, they were either communists, uh, they were sympathetic mm-hmm. to the Soviet Republic's role in the war, this is World War Two. They And they don't feel like the U.S. should have a monopoly on an atomic weapon. They don't think we should be the only ones to have it. And the Soviets are able to produce their own weapons by 1949. Um, They have Joe 1, which actually um, detonates August 29, 1949. So, this is kind of what happens. In January 1950... Klaus Fuchs, a German theoretical physicist, gave key documents to Soviets during the war. His courier is Harry Gold, who I, who was a, ph- a pharmacist, and he gives a, he identifies David Greenglass, who had been a machinist at Los Alamos, as an additional source of information. Mm-hmm. So he's actually building the thing. Okay. Greenglass confesses but says that his sister mm-hmm. is innocent, but he gives up Rosen, he gives up Julius. But then later when he's on trial, in order to save, he had a wife and children as well. And in order to save himself, his wife, and his children, he gives up Ethel. And says, Ethel knew all about it. She actually typed all the documents and uh, knew everything that Julius was doing. He and Greenglass and Julius were um, passing secrets. It's, that's... Not disputed. They were passing secrets, and that's how you link him. That's how you link, link Green Glass to the NKVD is through Rosenberg. So this is it. Just kind of falls apart. Um, the Rosenbergs uh. are arrested. Grand jury indictment um, over eleven acts of overt conspiracy to of of sorry over eleven acts of overt espionage. So the thing with Ethel is. The papers she allegedly typed were not really relevant at mm-hmm. all to the bomb. And they actually only indicted her to pressure Julius into giving up names. But it doesn't work. Neither of them talk. They both assert their right to the Fifth Amendment, uh, which is not to incriminate yourself. Um, and But it doesn't work. Like, the prosecution was really hoping he'd give up more names, like... Everyone else who's involved mm-hmm. in this just gets like prison time, and they're hoping that they'll just give up more names, so they won't press for because they're threatening exactly. execution. We, you know, yeah. we, we're going to execute you unless you give us some more names, and it doesn't work, and they don't give up any names. They're both convicted and sentenced oh my to death. God. Uh, the Rosenbergs maintain their innocence and claim that they have been framed. Uh, and this is where I actually have a quote from. Julius Rosenberg, he says that it's a political mm-hmm. frame-up, that he's innocent. He says, This death sentence is not surprising. It had to be. There had to be a Rosenberg case because there had to be an intensification of the hysteria in America to make the Korean War acceptable to the American people. There had to be, uh, there had to be hysteria and fear sent through America in order to get increased war budgets. And there had to be a dagger thrust into the heart of the left to tell them you are no longer going to get five years for a Smith Act prosecution or one year for contempt of court, but we're going to kill you.
1: What do you think, Kate? I,
0: I Here, I'm, I'm going to tell you a bit more, and then I'll tell you what I think. Okay. There are protests all across the U.S. Um, there's actually an all-black labor union, the International Longshoremen's Association. All 968 people stopped working for a day.
1: Oh, my God! Famous
0: people, Fritz Lang, Diego Rivera, Frida Kahlo... Jean Cocteau, Albert Einstein—they're all anti. They keep trying to push for the execution to be stayed. Um, actually, sure, but they're all
1: foreigners,
0: right? But Pope and Pope Pius the twelfth actually begs Eisenhower to spare them, but he refuses. Wow. Yeah, the Pope. Here's here's the kicker. Even without the info that was filtered through the Rosenbergs, the Soviet would have had the Soviets would have had their own bomb. A year later. And the Soviets have said that themselves. They've said, "Yeah, you know, it helped us by a year. That's about it. Yeah, yeah. Julius and Ethel Rosenberg were executed at Sing Sing in Osning, New York at sundown on June 19th, 1953. The sad thing is that Julius dies after the first shock, but it takes five to kill Ethel. So the controversy is a lot of USSR handlers worked on that worked on the soviet bomb said the only useful info that the rosenberg supplied were on us electrical systems um and since julius didn't actually understand the stuff he was getting about the bomb mm-hmm. none of it helped so any of the parts that he actually passed along about the bomb didn't actually mm-hmm. help the soviets at all but
1: but he was an engineer
0: i know but he's not a theoretical physicist like he's not yeah. He doesn't understand the bomb, so...
1: Mm-hmm,
0: mm-hmm. Um, And actually... Later, I mean, I guess that
1: isn't really even the point, whether it's helpful or not, right? I mean...
0: Yeah. I mean, apparently he doesn't know what to pass along, so he kind of passes along everybody. weird stuff that doesn't help. Yeah. Um, later, David Greenglass recants and says he doesn't know who typed the papers, and that <gasps> Ethel had nothing to do with any of it. Oh. This is another one of those weird coincidences. About a month before the execution, pamphlets Mm -hmm. on a Mother's Day, pamphlets were handed out on New York City street corners protesting um, the execution Mm -hmm. um, passed out by a communist league. And who happens to pick up a pamphlet or is handed a pamphlet? But a 14-year-old Lee Harvey Oswald.
1: Ah! And
0: six years after defecting to... uh, Russia, he told a reporter it was the beginning of his interest in socialist literature and led to him becoming a lifelong Marxist.
1: Wow.
0: And the last little side note I'll say is I was actually thinking about um, Angels in America the other day. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. I forgot. um, So uh, there's a character who's Rory Cohn, who is um, a member of the prosecution team against Ethel and Julius, and i mm. forgot that he's haunted by ethel rosenberg in the play and the movie
1: that's right was that meryl streep in the movie
0: yes it was she's amazing she she could do anything yeah so that's my that's my sad espionage story i don't i wow. actually i think yes i think julius was involved in espionage i mm-hmm. don't think ethel was at all at
1: all, or just at a lower level? I think you maybe she
0: knew what her husband yeah. was doing, but I really, yeah. I think he probably tried to protect her and tried to keep her out of it. Um, they're, yes, they're both well, communists. Until
1: until the moment when he actually could have protected her.
0: Right, and so they both get put to death for, it's it's a crime that they get put to death. I, I don't think yeah. they should have been. They tried to make a lesson out of the Rosenbergs, but it doesn't work.
1: Yeah. Wow. Wow. Oh, how sad. Okay. See, you have a sad one too.
0: Yeah, you got a happy one now?
1: Um sort of. It's a little bit lighter. Um this is our last our last report on espionage in New York City, and it's just barely history. You get a lot of a lot of very old stuff from us about the Revolutionary War we even talked about Cleopatra in one episode if you recall uh, but this might be the most recent history and remember this, this was June of 2010 very recent when they caught Russian uh, ho- high profile agents in the US Right. This, these were the uh, people this was Aldrich Hazen Ames Harold James Nicholson Earl Edwin Pitts Robert Philip Hansen, and George Trofimov. This was in June 2010, an alleged SVR, and SVR is the successor to the Soviet KTB, an alleged SVR spy network called the Illegals Program by the U.S. Department of Justice. This was revealed when 10 suspects who had been living long-term in the U.S. were arrested. So they lived in Montclair, New Jersey, one of the couples did. had the house, the suburbs, kids, Little League, you know. Uh, an FBI investigation, be- which began at least seven years before this, so 2003, culminated in the arrest of 10 people. They, some of them were in Yonkers, some were in Boston, some were in Northern Virginia. And the documents detailed this illegal program, an ambitious long-term effort by the SVR to plant Russian spies in the United States to gather information and recruit more agents. So the alleged agents were directed to gather information on nuclear weapons, American policy toward Iran, CIA leadership, congressional politics, and many other topics. This is according to the prosecutors. The Russian spies made contact with a former high-ranking American national security official and a nuclear weapons researcher, among others, but... Here's what's interesting: the charges did not include espionage, hmm. and it was unclear what secrets that this whole suspected spying and it included five couples. It's unclear what they actually managed to collect. Um, but it's a great story. Uh, the The criminal complaints that were filed in federal district court it's it's like an old fashioned Cold War, you know, spy yeah. novel. There were spies swapping identical orange bags as they brushed past one another in a train station stairway. They, Someone borrowed an identity from a dead Canadian. They had forged passports. They sent messages by shortwave burst transmission. They used invisible ink. No. There was a money cash buried for, for years in a field in upstate New York. So a lot of very, very... Uh, Antique-sounding methods, but also, these so-called illegals, um, they were they were spies operating under false names outside of diplomatic cover. That's the, the definition of these illegals. They also used cyber-age technology. This is according to the charges. They, imported, they embedded coded texts in ordinary-looking images posted on the Internet. They communicated by having two agents with laptops containing special software they would pass casually as messages flashed in between them. Wow. So there are experts on Russian intelligence here in the U.S., and they were astonished at the scale and the longevity and the dedication of this program. They noted that Vladimir Putin, Russian prime minister, former president, and spy chief, he had worked to restore the prestige and funding of Russian espionage, after the collapse of the Soviet Union and the dark image of the KGB. Mm -hmm. So, one person, uh, the quote is, the magnitude and the fact that so many illegals were involved was a shock to me, said Oleg D. Kalugin, a former KGB general who was a Soviet spy in the United States in the 60s and 70s. He was doing that under legal, quote-unquote legal, legal cover as a diplomat and a Radio Moscow correspondent. Uh so the rest of his quote it's a return to the old days but even in the worst years of the Cold War i think there were no more than 10 illegals in the US probably fewer so this is big huge uh one message from the bosses in Moscow and this was sort of in awkward English uh gave the most revealing account of the agent's assignment quote you were sent to USA for long term service trip it said your education bank accounts car house etc all these serve one goal Fulfill your main mission, i.e., to search and develop ties in policymaking circles and send intels or intel reports to center. What we're not clear about is what the intelligence reports were about. Um, you know, one agent met a government employee working in a nuclear program. So, what the defendants were actually charged with was conspiracy. Not okay. they were not charged with you know attempt to commit espionage.
0: So, it's like my favorite crime ever, racketeering, where you're not actually racketeering. committing a crime, <laughs> but you're talking about.
1: You're talking about it. Well, here, I mean, it was, they they conspired to fail to register as agents of a foreign government. Okay. That's what we got them on. Uh, that carries a maximum sentence of five years in prison. Nine of them were charged with conspiracy to commit money laundering. Right. Conspiracy to commit money Not money they laundering. They
0: didn't do it, but.
1: Thinking about, talking about maybe starting to do money laundry.
0: I hope nobody ever busts me for something, because I think about doing a lot of things.
1: <laughs> you better keep your mouth shut I, about that. I,
0: oops, maybe I'll edit that part out.
1: <laughs> maybe you better. Um, <laughs> the uh, conspiracy to commit money laundering carries a maximum penalty of 20 years, but nowhere in any of these, anything of their charges, they're not accused of obtaining classified materials. Hmm. So... Most of their activity, and a lot of the FBI investigators, their surveillance, took place in and around New York. The alleged agents were spotted in a bookstore in lower Manhattan, spotted on a bench near an entrance, the entrance to Central Park, uh, spotted in a restaurant in Sunnyside, Queens. Um, secret exchanges were made at busy locations, like the Long Island Railroad Station in Forest Hills. Uh, FBI watchers in 2004 spotted one defendant, uh, one who is not in custody, Christopher R. Mitzos, um, and they uh, spotted him there. So it was all in and around New York City for such a long, elaborate thing. Doesn't sound like they got too much. And I guess technically, you'll you'll pardon me for this. It is not espionage. It does just barely qualify for today's discussion. But uh,
0: but it it's the intent to do espionage.
1: Yes. And the creepy knowledge that this is all still going on, no matter what, you know, status we are with Russia, presumably allies, uh, Cold War over, but uh, this still happens. And of course, there's all this recent stuff about the U.S. reading all everyone's text messages and listen to everyone's voicemails and
0: right as i was studying up for this podcast i was thinking about the nsa and our mm-hmm. i mean mm-hmm. we we talked about people spying on us but and we talked a bit about you know asters studying on other people but yeah um yeah. We, we definitely do it if as much if not more than than other people
1: yeah we're not in the clear no. yeah
0: I think I need to watch that show, The Americans, now. I haven't seen it, and now I'm totally interested in spies. Not in a way that Hmm. I'd ever like to be one, though. (laughs) Well, thank you, Kathleen. This has been quite informative, and I feel not so safe in New York City.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I know, right? (laughs) Although probably the most we have to fear is our own government. I don't know. Uh, Maybe.
0: Uh. Yeah, well, yeah. everyone, I hope you got to learn a little bit more about the strange and weird history of New York City and what goes on when you're not looking.
1: Very, very important to be always aware of spies. Keep an eye out. Look for people swapping bags in train stations because apparently that's what they do. In
0: trench coats.
1: In trench obviously. Sunglasses and a fedora, yeah.
0: <laughs> Just watch out for Whoop. those hipsters. It could be a hipster. <laughs>
1: you never know. <laughs> Fake mustaches everywhere.
0: Thank you, Kathleen.
1: Thank you, Kate. Hope you guys learned something. And yeah, we will talk to you next time with episode F.
0: Yeah, see you next time. Bye.
1: Bye guys. I wish you could be here with me on this night of New York City. I wish you could be For more ABC Gotham, go to our website, abcgotham.podbean.com. Special thanks to Podcastings Brock. Music for ABC Gotham is by Big Rude Jake. ABC Gotham is a K2 production, copyright 2013, all rights reserved. a favorite song, you Be here with me on this night of New York City.